invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're going to begin in chapter 3 and look at a total of three passages from the book of John. One of the privileges I had this year was I got a letter from the Horry County Court that I had jury duty back in December. It was when I got the letter. I was talking to one of our trustees who's an attorney. I don't think Pat's here this morning, but uh, Pat Henry, I called him and said, I've got jury duty in January. And he said, well, they're not going to put a preacher on the jury. And he said, wait a minute. He said, His wife's name is Marvis. He called. He said, Marvis, don't you have jury duty coming up? And sure enough, we, had, we were picked to be on the same jury pool. And he said, they're not going to pick her either. So I go in January over to Conway to the nice new courthouse over there. And uh, sure enough, Marvis and I sit there all through Monday, a hundred or so people. I mean, what are the chances that I'm going to be picked to be on a jury? We're sent home on Monday night. On Tuesday morning, we come back and they pick 35 of us to go to a courtroom. Marvis and I are in the courtroom together. The judge asked, does anybody know each other on the jury? And I said, absolutely. I know Marvis Henry. She knows me. By the way, her husband's an attorney, for crying out loud. But I'm still, I'm thinking, 35 people, what are the chances that I'm going to get picked to be on the jury? Well, sure enough, Marvis Henry is picked to be on the jury, and Robert Shaw is picked to be on the jury. Counting the two alternates, there's only 14 of us. And Marvis and I are on the same jury together. Guess who the judge appointed to be the foreman of the jury? Me. Now, next to the verdict, the most important decision I made every night was when the judge looked at me and said, Mr. Shaw, do you want donuts or biscuits in the morning? I said, how about both? On the way out the door, the bailiff let me know in no uncertain terms we were not getting biscuits the next morning. He had already lined up pastries from the trestle, okay? You know, they pay you like $15 a day, and then you get pastries from the trestle. That's a great gig, isn't it? One of the things that I sat there, I took my job very seriously. I sat and listened to testimony. This was a wrongful death case. And so I'm listening to testimony from the plaintiff's attorney. I'm listening to testimonies from the defense's attorneys and expert witnesses. And I took that very seriously. And we had to make a decision in the case based on the testimony that we received. Now, they, weren't, they wouldn't let us do any of our own private investigation. I can tell you now that it involved Walmart. That night I got home, the judge said, you can't discuss this case with anybody. We're sitting at dinner. Somebody in my family said, we need to go to Walmart tonight. I thought, I'm not going anywhere near Walmart tonight. I got to see cameras and camera angles. You have no idea how many cameras there are at Walmart. I know you see some. There's some you cannot see. We saw pinhole cameras. All this was part of the testimony that we had to make a decision about. This morning I want to talk to you about your testimony. The power of a testimony. In John chapter 3, Jesus is going to have an encounter with a man named Nicodemus. And for some of you, you're afraid to share your testimony. I think there's times we feel like 
testimonies are, we're, we're being salesmen. I worked in sales before I went into ministry, and there's times you feel like you're selling something. Well, I, I want to free you up from that. You're not selling anything. When you tell somebody about your relationship with Jesus Christ, you're really being more of a, sound, a signpost. You're pointing people in the right direction, a signpost. So we see this encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And let me say from the outset, how many of you have watched the, the series on Sunday night on the Bible? I've enjoyed that. It has not been totally historically accurate. If any of you have seen some things, you thought, ah, that's not exactly the way that occurs in Scripture. Have you all noticed some of that? That's okay. I'm allowing a little bit of their poetic license. For instance, when Abraham takes his son Isaac to sacrifice him, what does the Bible say? They went on a three-day journey. Well, in the movie they're portraying on Sunday night, he was just right up the hill because Sarah went chasing after him. Okay? I don't think it happened that way. When Jesus went in to raise Lazarus from the dead, the movie portrayed it as though they kind of went in. He went in and laid hands on him. The Bible says he called him and says, Lazarus, come forth. And why did Jesus have to say, Lazarus, come forth? Because he didn't want anybody else coming forth. <laughs> it was specific. It's Lazarus that we're talking about. And yet, I've enjoyed the, I've enjoyed the movie one of the things they've portrayed about Nicodemus, I want, to, I want to clarify through Scripture. They've made it look like Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus happened the day before Jesus was arrested. And you haven't seen him until then. I want to say I believe it was very early in Jesus' ministry where Nicodemus has the encounter we're going to look at first. And then chapter 7 and chapter 19 get a little closer to the cross. But let me read this passage, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now... There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's get the context of the conversation. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Nicodemus is part of that religious 
class that were known as separate, separatists. They kind of separated themselves. Pharisees. Talked about them this morning. There's also the Sadducees. Some members of the Pharisee and some members of the Sadducees made up the ruling council called the Sanhedrin. But they were ritual, unchanged hearts. And yet I believe we see a glimmer in Nicodemus that he's asking questions. In fact, his name means victorious among his people. We know from other writings that Nicodemus was probably a leading teacher of Israel. He was a Pharisee, but a teacher of the law. Leading teacher. But he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, which again is really a term of uh, respect. Literally it means master. And so Nicodemus at this point is putting Jesus on his level. He's not talking down to him. Nicodemus could have been qualified as a rabbi, and he calls Jesus a rabbi. And he starts the conversation by saying, we know. Now, I don't know if you stop sometimes when you read Scripture and say, who's, who's we? Who's with him? I don't think he was with somebody. I think it simply meant Nicodemus said, we've been having conversations about you. Now, did everybody in the Sanhedrin agree with the statement he was about to make? Absolutely not. Because what he says is, we know you must be from God. Listen, the Sanhedrin had already decided he couldn't possibly be from God. They saw the same signs Nicodemus saw, but they interpreted those signs as being he must be doing magic. He's probably of the devil. And that's why they decided to get rid of him. But Nicodemus says, we know that you must be from God because no one does these signs, literally these indications, unless God is with him. What's Nicodemus saying right here at the outset? Basically he's saying, I'm impressed by what I see in you. In fact, the word that he says for know is a word that can be translated know or to see. So what Nicodemus is simply saying is we see by what we see, you must be from God. And then something happens between verses 2 and 3 because it says Jesus answered. Have you heard a question? <laughs> you ever read that and thought, wait a minute, who, what's he answer? Well, here's my first point about our testimony, and that is this. When you're telling people your testimony, and you're hearing from them, first thing I encourage you to do is listen carefully. I think sometimes we get on this gospel track where we're telling people about Jesus, but we don't listen to their story. And so there really has been an issue that Jesus is going to address here, and the issue is Nicodemus says, we know God. And Jesus stops him right there. Don't know where the full conversation would have gone if Jesus hadn't have jumped in, but because Jesus listened carefully... He stopped Nicodemus even at that point and said, truly, truly, you, you can't know God unless you've been born again. Now, I think we step back and think Nicodemus, he, he kind of starts looking like a deer in headlights when he hears that term. You know, I've heard that term of you must be born again. I remember as a, as a teenager here in my church and the preacher would usually add an ED on the end of it. You grew up in that kind of church. You must be born again. And a lot of times they would pound the pulpit real loud. And, you know, I'm sitting back thinking, how did, what does that mean, born again? And yet what Jesus was talking about was something radically transforming in your life that it could only be described as a brand new birth. Now, now one thing I know about everybody in this room, you've all been born one time. Okay? You've all experienced birth. But what Jesus is talking about is something beyond that. That is a new birth. 
And you say, Nicodemus, you say, we know that you must be from God. What Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, you don't know God. And so not only is it really upsetting Nicodemus' ideas to think, hey, I'm a religious leader and he's telling me I've got to be born again, but he's also telling me I really don't know God. We'll get to more of that in a minute because Nicodemus asked, how can this happen? At least twice in this passage, Nicodemus says, how? Jesus is saying, you've got to be born again, and Nicodemus is saying, how? And he puts it back to Jesus, this conversation, this illustration that Jesus is using. Nicodemus said, how can that happen to an old person? And Jesus goes on to explain how it happens. But the second thing I want you to see is religion does not equal salvation. Just because you're religious does not mean you know God. Listen, the resume that Nicodemus came to Jesus with was was impeccable. He was born a Jew. If that wasn't good enough, he was a member of the Pharisee party. If that wasn't enough, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which meant he had picked to be one of 70 men who would operate with the high priest to be the ruling council. This guy was as religious as they came. And yet Jesus is saying, you don't know God? And for Nicodemus to think for a moment, wait a minute. Have I spent my entire life banking on the fact that I'm going to spend eternity with God based on my effort? And you're telling me it's not good enough? Because i got to tell you, birth wasn't up to you. <laughs> if, if you're born, and, and you are, it's not an if. Everybody in here has been born, all right? How much did you have to do with that? It wasn't your effort. It wasn't you saying, hey, was this good enough? <laughs> no. No. It was something out of your control. Listen, when we come to God, it's because God has done it all. God has drawn us to Himself. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. I didn't pay that penalty. I couldn't. It was impossible. So religion does not equal salvation. So what do you do? What does Jesus do? He simply shares the truth. Twice he says in this passage, truly, truly. In fact, the word would be translated, amen, amen. Literally, most certainly, so be it. I'm speaking the truth. So Nicodemus comes with his idea about God, but when he comes to Jesus, Jesus says, let me, let me tell you the truth about God. You can't know God unless you've been born again. In fact, he says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Religion does not equal salvation. Nicodemus was religious. And then the fourth thing, don't give up. We're going to see Nicodemus apparently walk away from Jesus at this point. And he hasn't yet come to faith in Christ, which amazes us at times. How could you have an encounter with Jesus where Jesus tells you the truth and you walk away in the same condition you came there in? Yeah, Nicodemus walked away unsaved. But he wasn't exactly in the same condition. Because the promise we have from God's Word is the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible also tells us His Word does not return void 
So, folks, listen, when you're sharing your testimony, when you're sharing the plan of salvation with somebody, just share the truth. And if they walk away from you, understand this. Number one, they're not rejecting you. And number two, how do you know? But what the Spirit of God doesn't start working at that moment. Maybe you just planted the seed. Somebody else will water it. Somebody else may see the harvest of that. But share the truth. And does it get any better than verse 16? The gospel in a nutshell, Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave. Who did he give? He gave Jesus, the one speaking. He gave him so that in a relationship with him, we don't perish. The word perish literally means to be destroyed utterly. We don't perish but have everlasting life. Literally perpetual zoe. Zoe is a Greek word that means more than just the biology of breath and life. It means life to the full. So that's Nick at night. Let's look at Nick at court. Flip over to chapter 7 of John's Gospel. In chapter 7, we see Nicodemus again. Let me just give you the context. Jesus has been teaching in the temple courts, and it has upset the Sanhedrin something awful. And so they've dispatched some officers to arrest Jesus. Hey, here's your instructions. Go out, follow him. When you're hearing teaching, bring him back to us so that we can put him on trial. Now, the officers they sent were trained religious men. These were of the priestly order. This was not Roman officers. This was Jewish officers that went to hear Jesus. And look what happens in John 7, verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus. He who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search, the, search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So the first thing here is, don't be shamed by the opposition. What do the religious leaders do? They've sent people out to arrest Jesus. This is a little bit comical. The very men they sent out to arrest Jesus came back and they said, why didn't you arrest him? They said, we've never heard anybody talk like that before. And here's where the shame starts. What do they say? You're not, you're not falling for his line, are you? And then they say, none of us have accepted his testimony. It's kind of like the peer pressure of nobody cool is doing that. You ever face that kind of peer pressure? Hey, the cool people are doing this. Here's what I want to say to you. Give up being cool if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're more concerned about what the world thinks of you, you won't be a follower of Jesus Christ because the world will be against it. The world doesn't mind if you're religious. They really don't. The world may not mind that you go to church, but when you start telling people about Jesus, you start talking about Jesus, it upsets people. And part of the shame-based answer that they will say is, listen, that's not cool. 
You need to be quiet. The cool people aren't doing that. And I'm thinking, is that the best they've got? <laughs> the best excuse for not believing what Jesus is saying is, we don't believe it, so you shouldn't either. If you really want to be one of us, if you want to be in the in crowd, you better disassociate yourself in a hurry. And at that point, what does Nicodemus do? Nicodemus stands up. Now, the same guy that came to Jesus at night, and a lot of times we kind of view him coming at night as thinking he was sneaking around. That may have been part of it. He may have thought, I don't want any of my buddies on the Sanhedrin to see me and brought up in daylight talking to Jesus. Now, he might have also thought, I really want to have a conversation with Jesus, and nighttime is going to be the most undistracted time to do that. And it may have been a little bit of both of those. But Nicodemus stands up. You want to talk about being cool? How hard is that? How many people make up the Sanhedrin? Seventy plus the high priest. Plus there were other people in the room, these officers that came back. And Nicodemus is the only one that stands up and defends Jesus at that point and says, wait a minute, you're already condemning him and he hasn't had a trial yet. Doesn't our law say that we don't condemn somebody? We don't pass final judgment? And that's what they've done. They've already passed final judgment. Jesus has been condemned before the trial. You go read the gospel accounts of the trial where Jesus goes to Annas, he goes to Caiaphas, he goes to Pilate, he goes to Herod. The religious people have already decided he's guilty. Didn't care what he had to say. And Nicodemus says, I think we ought to hear from him first. And what do they say to him? Listen, you're not from Galilee, are you? To be in Jerusalem, be among the religious elite, they viewed the region around the Sea of Galilee as just backwoods, hayseed, fishermen. There wasn't any educational institutions over there. Those aren't learned men. That's why the disciples were treated the way they were in a lot of ways. They looked at him and thought, these guys aren't educated. But they knew Jesus. And so they try to shame Nicodemus by saying, what, what are you from Galilee? Do your own investigation. Search and see that no prophet rises out of Galilee. Well, if they had have searched... And if they had have seen in the pages of the Old Testament, they would have known that's exactly where it was prophesied that he would come from. He was fulfilling prophecy. But what do we do at the end of the day? Stand on the truth. You come back to the truth. And what's the truth? The truth is God's Word. Let's look at a third vignette. Flip over to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We've had the triumphal entry. We've had the Passion Week where Jesus has taught. We've had the Thursday night Last Supper. We've had the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed, if there's any other way for this cup to pass for me, so be it. But God, not my will, your will be done. We've had the crucifixion. Jesus has died on the cross. And we see Nicodemus one last time. In John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. 
So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, became bold enough by the seventh chapter of John to stand up for him. Folks, I believe by the 19th chapter, he's become a follower of Jesus Christ. The testimony bore fruit. Jesus said, I'm telling you our testimony. You don't accept the testimony. I believe by the time three years had passed in Jesus' ministry, Nicodemus was there with Joseph of Arimathea. Who was Joseph of Arimathea? Joseph was also a member of the council. We read about him over in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter, if you want to jot this down, 15, verse 43. He was a member of the, the council also. See, he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. So it wasn't just Nicodemus. Because of Nicodemus' stand back in chapter 7, apparently some other guys started thinking, you know what, he's right. Our law says we shouldn't condemn a guy without hearing him, and that's exactly what we're doing. And so Joseph of Arimathea, apparently a wealthy man, came and asked Pilate for the body. They had already proven that Jesus was dead. Sometimes the Roman guards would be merciful as sundown came, especially sundown of the Sabbath. They would come and break the legs of the condemned man so that it would hasten his death. Because part of the anguish of the cross is you're constantly pushing yourself up on that nail through your feet just to get another breath. And so if they break your legs, you'll suffocate quicker. Well, what had they done with Jesus? They had come and pierced his side with a spear, and they saw blood and water separated coming out of his body. They recognized that he was dead. And so Joseph of Arimathea asked, May I please take his body off the cross and give him a burial? Pilate. Agreed. Now keep in mind, Pilate didn't want to have anything to do with this in the first place. In fact, when he finally relents, just to keep peace among the religious leaders, he relents. One thing he does do is put above the sign, Jesus, King of the Jews. And the religious leaders hated it. In fact, they came to him and said, listen, change that. At least put it that he said he was King of the Jews. Pilate said, no, what I've written is what I've written. And so when Joseph of Arimathea came and said, can I at least take his body down for a burial? Pilate said, you have my permission. You ever thought what would have happened if Pilate had said no? Or what would have happened if Joseph of Arimathea had not asked for permission? You know what happened to the bodies on the cross? They stayed there. Why did they stay there? Because, folks, the cross was right beside a street that people came in and out of the city. And the Roman leaders wanted people to see decaying bodies on the cross to be a warning, don't let this happen to you. And it was always convicted criminals, murderers, thieves. In this case, it was Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And if Joseph hadn't asked permission, if Pilate hadn't have granted, that he would have stayed on the cross. The birds would have eaten his flesh. Maggots would have, I guess, infested his body. And he would simply have decayed. But it's getting close to dark. Joseph takes the body off the cross. He's met by Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus brings a hundred pounds of spices. Now, if some of you are reading in the ESV, it says 75 pounds. Anybody got an ESV that says 75 pounds? I like the ESV translation, by the way. It's a good translation. So you wonder, wait a minute, which was it? Was it 100 or was it 75? Well, it was 100 pounds. The only problem is the pounds were about 12 ounces. So English equivalent, it really is closer to about 75 pounds. Some of you may even have 65 pounds in your translation. So don't get caught up over that. It was a lot of spices. What are they using the spices for? They would line these strips of linen with spices, and they would wrap the body. And when I read that this week, it reminded me afresh, had Jesus ever been wrapped in linen strips before? Yeah, at his birth, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Have we ever seen myrrh and aloes a part of Jesus' life before? What did the wise men bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What was myrrh used for? It was a burial spice. In fact, apparently it did not naturally occur in Palestine. So it was very expensive. And what, what were they interested in? The, the uh, Romans did not embalm the bodies, although myrrh could be used in embalming. They simply prepared them just to smell good while they rotted. Okay? And so that's what it was there for. The, these spices, these aloes, this myrrh was there. It had to be incredibly heavy by the time they got it all wrapped on him and placed him into this new tomb. The other thought that occurred to me is not only why do you wrap a dead body up with something, why are you putting perfume on a body that's decaying? And you know what typically would happen? That body would lay in the grave for about a year. Then they would come back. You know what they would do after a year? They would collect the bones and put it in a box called an ossuary. And they'd use that tomb again. So that's why when it says it was a new tomb, nobody ever laid there before, tombs were recycled. (laughs) But Joseph of Arimathea, wealthy, had a tomb in a garden right by Calvary. And they placed the body in that tomb. I also thought, if they had just known what was coming, not only did they waste time putting spice on a decaying body, he wasn't going to need those spices. He wasn't even going to need the tomb for very long. Thank you very much for the tomb, but in three days, I'm rising from the dead. In fact, one of the things we know that demonstrates wealth of Joseph of Arimathea is his tomb had a stone in front of it. If you've watched the Bible series and you saw the tomb of Lazarus, that was more indicative of a typical grave in the first century. They just piled rocks up there and kind of formed a court over the opening. But Joseph of Arimathea had a track in front of his tomb that had a stone that could be rolled in front of it. And that's where Jesus was laid. The testimony bore fruit, but my last point is this. Genuine faith is obvious. What I mean by that? It doesn't say in Scripture, specifically, that Nicodemus had come to faith in Christ. So why do we believe? Most scholars believe he had become a believer by now. Why? Because, folks, at the end of Christ's life, he stood up for Jesus. He identified. The disciples are gone. The disciples are hiding behind a locked door in the upper room. Why? Because they're afraid they're going to be next. And Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had been secret followers up to this point. But the secret's out. You've come and asked to claim the body of Jesus. Genuine faith is obvious. It's also obvious for us. I told you at the beginning of the message, 
birth is obvious. You can't hide birth. Well, if you've become a follower of Jesus Christ, it will be obvious. I'm not talking about religious stuff here, folks. I'm talking about the fact that your life changes. And that's why Jesus used the term born again. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Just between you and the Lord, right there in the quietness of this moment, ask yourself the question, have you been born again? In fact, I think it's even a fair question to ask, is there any evidence of that? Father, I pray for us today. I pray for men and women. Lord, we look at this three encounters with Nicodemus. Lord, I believe that Nicodemus is in heaven today. He's spending eternity with you. A man who came just a religious leader. He had banked all of his hope on the fact that he had done some religious things. And yet Jesus said, that's not enough. You don't know me. God, I pray there wouldn't be anybody here that on the day they meet Jesus would be in that same shape. Jesus tells us there's going to be people that are going to say, hey, I... I called you Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. So God, this moment, would you capture our hearts? And Lord, ask, answer the question in our own heart. Do we know you? And God, I pray that you would take men and women in this room who do know you. And God, I pray that we would share our testimony with others. Because, God, the reason I know Jesus is because somebody shared that with me. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen. I invite you to stand. We're going to sing just a closing chorus. I'll be at the back.